You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. This week, and though it looks different and feels different and will be different this year, um, there's something that can be so powerful about focusing on gratitude and focusing on in the midst of the darkest times and year, both actually darkest, right? This time of year and um, just the heaviness that this year brings, it can be, it can be a spiritual exercise. So I'm going to read um, a short prayer. It's called on gratitude. Take what works for you. If you're not ready to be there yet, that's totally fine. You can listen, you can not listen. Um, but I'm going to pray and I invite you to pray with me um, if, if you are so moved. So on gratitude. To pause and give thanks is to pay attention to the parts of living that bring delight. Turn us from what destroys and make life rich, whatever else may also be. This practice of intentional remembering helps realign our perspective with the whole truth of our lives. When bitterness or fear or grief become the whole view, gratitude points us to the beauty also, and the love anyway, and the simple pleasures that surround, our steady companions in life's complexities. We honor the sacred, we honor each other, we honor the earth and our creaturely companions when we remember this web of life that holds us all its terrors, all its gifts, gratitude paired with denial about all that calls for mending and repair will not satisfy for long. But gratitude that is alive to all that is, a sibling of sorrow, a cousin of rage, so aware of the ache and the loss and injustice, but still seeing cause to pray. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, is to feast on the nourishment of God. Amen. Amen. This morning I wanted to share um, two very short uh, pieces here. One is a responsive call to worship. particularly as we're leading into Thanksgiving, a time when we usually get to join together with other people. And uh, that's not going to be possible for so many of us. A call to worship is um, traditionally what's brought uh, the faith community together and called us into one place and one being. It kind of identifies us as a family together. So a really short, um, responsive reading that I wanted to share, as well as a very short, responsive um, prayer um, that we'll just put together. And of course, as this has been such a complicated year um, with some celebration, but a tremendous amount of loss, uh, a tremendous amount of grieving, of relationships, isolation, mental health, loss of loved ones and jobs, and um, gosh, just so much, not to mention the political upheaval, 
that we've been surrounded with um, the um, constant struggle with race and injustice in our country. Um, so much has happened this year. And while we are called to be thankful, the thing that brings comfort to me in the middle of these kinds of difficult times and complexities is um, more than anything that our God doesn't just ask of us, but God comes alongside us. And so we do this journey, not for God to fix anything, but for God to be present with us through it. Um, and so as I put this together, that was in mind. So I hope that that comes through. But like always, uh, as we pray these things, some of it might not feel like it applies to you. That's perfectly fine because we carry these prayers together for each other. Um, would you join me in prayer? The presence of God is surely in this place. The presence, the presence, of, presence of, God of God is, is everywhere. everywhere. We open our hearts to receive the presence of God in this place at this time. Receive ways to express the presence, the presence of, God of God in all places, at all, at all times. We gather here to remind ourselves and each other that God is everywhere at all times. God, God is in all, all people, in all things, in all places, and in all, and in all circumstances. To see God where we expect to find God, we open our eyes. To see God everywhere, we must open our hearts. In times of trial and grief, God, you remain you faithful, remain faithful to, us. to us. In times of heartbreak and uncertainty, you lead us in our search for comfort. As we've struggled with illness and the loss of loved ones, you've guided, you guided and comforted us. When we celebrate new life, new jobs, and renewed life, you rejoiced with us. In those times when we need wisdom, we, we seek renewed, renewed minds and spirits, spirits in, you. in you. Gracious God, this year has brought challenges that we couldn't have imagined a year ago. We both grieve and rejoice. Everything's not okay, but everything's not lost. We mourn and we're thankful. God, you meet us in our suffering and you rejoice in our celebrations. I'm thankful this morning that you are God who comes alongside us in our journey. that you call us in community together with one another, that as we celebrate, we don't do that alone. As we mourn, we don't do that alone. This year 
in the middle of all the struggle, we're thankful for community, for this place. We're thankful for your presence in and among us and whatever that means for each one of us. God, let this be a place where we don't just focus here on ourselves, where we take the ways that we've poured into each other, that you've poured into us, and we outpour those things into this world and community around us, um, a world that so much needs your touch, your healing. Allow us to be a part of this journey. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Oh, Bob, are you going to say something else? I, okay, cool. I saw an inhale and it was just anticipatory. And as Bob mentioned, uh, if you want to grab something for um, communion and you haven't yet, you can go for it. I'm going to bring you some uh, holiday communion um, from my end today. So those of you who are anti-early holiday folks, you can avert your eyes and ears. Um, but I have a marzipan ball um, from uh, World Market, I think that those are from. And then a mug of mulled wine that Karis and I made last night and then did not finish whatsoever. <laughs> so we refrigerated it and, and uh, I was coming in and she's like, do you want mulled wine for communion? And I said, yup, I sure do. <laughs> so she heated this up and I'm very excited about it. So as always, um, one of uh, my favorite traditions in our gatherings um, in quarantine has been to hear the fun combinations that y'all come up with for communion. So feel free to drop those in the chat as always. They bring little smiles to my face. As we take communion and continue the theme uh, this week, I wanna read you a poem by W.S. Merwin. Um, and um, I hope it speaks to you. Um, it's called Thanks. Listen, with the night falling, we are saying thank you. We are stopping on the bridges to bow from the railings. We are running out of the glass rooms with our mouths full of food to look at the sky and say thank you. We are standing by the water, thinking it, thanking it, standing by the windows, looking out in our directions. Back from a series of hospitals, back from a mugging, after funerals, we are saying thank you. After the news of the dead, whether or not we knew them, we are saying thank you. Over telephones, we are saying thank you. In doorways and in the backs of cars and in elevators, remembering wars and the police at the door and the beatings on stairs, we are saying thank you. In the banks, we are saying thank you. In the faces of the officials and the rich and of all who will never change, we go on saying thank you, thank you. With the animals dying around us, taking our feelings, we are saying thank you. With the forests falling faster than the minutes of our lives, we are saying thank you. With the words going out like cells of a brain, with the cities, 
growing over us, we are saying thank you faster and faster. With nobody listening, we are saying thank you. Thank you, we are saying and waving, dark though it is. God, as we take communion today, may we embrace the fullness of what it means to be human in a plague, in a country, God, that cries for justice and reason, in families, God, um, that struggle hard to hear each other and understand each other in the messiness of each one of our lives and our loneliness, we practice saying thank you. So will you take with me the bread or whatever you have as we remember our calling to be the hands and feet of Christ in the world. Jesus has never tasted so delicious. And now with the cup, may we remember the blood shed for us, the covenant we are in, have been called into, have been invited into to be love, to be God, to be Jesus in this world as we love our neighbors as ourselves. Take the cup. May it be so. Amen. I think Angie just has a few announcements for us today. Yes, sir. Good morning, everyone. Um, so this week, like usual, we have the gathering Wednesday at 7.30. Philmosophy is Thursday nights at 6 p.m. They're both at the Zoom link. Um, we will be uh, considering book club now again, as uh, Bob said. Um, we'll be reading The Year of Magical Thinking by Joan Didion. Um, and we will be meeting after Christmas. The date is TBD still. Um, we have a couple of blood drives still coming up, December 10 and January 11. And um, as far as Essencia, we will be providing dinner to the Essencia um, on New, New Year's Eve. And if you're interested in getting looped in, just reach out to Max um, and he'll help you get set up to help out. That's it today. Thanks, Angie. Um, so uh, prayer requests, uh, words of Thanksgiving. I invite you to share if you have any joys or any concerns. Uh, going on. Um, you can always put it in the chat window if you'd prefer to put it there. Otherwise, unmute and let us know. Um, is there anybody this morning? Um, yeah, hi, Aaron. Hey, Randy. Um, I just found out that um, an old friend of mine has late stage prostate cancer. Um, last year, he was diagnosed, but he thought the Lord would just heal him and didn't really rely on doctors. And now it's spread to his bones and other places and it they really don't know how much longer he has left and his family's going up there so his name's david Troji. yeah absolutely let's pray loving god we lift up david in the hour of his need and this profound suffering he's going through with um advanced uh cancer we pray for um just him holistically body spirit soul and mind that he might know peace that he might get the help that he needs um, from doctors, that he might um, 
be in recovery, um, be in remission. Um, we pray for him and may he know the love of those in his life. Um, be with Randy and all those that are journeying with him uh, and grieving with him. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks. Randy. Anybody else this morning? Hey, Aaron, um, I have a friend, Stephanie, who went back to work after maternity leave and her first day back, she was exposed to COVID. And so she's quarantining and trying to figure out how to, I don't know, deal with the two children, but also having to breastfeed. And it's just, it's a mess. Wow. So just if we can pray for Stephanie, I'd appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. We lift up Stephanie. And we pray for her health and well-being. We pray for all of the stresses that May mentioned involved in her life with having young children and breastfeeding and all of that. And we pray for her um, peace of mind, but her health and um, may she just receive the support she needs from family and friends at this time. Um, and all those in our lives who are um, just faced with um, just difficulties through work and and being exposed to COVID or something like that. But um, we, we ask specifically for her um, that she might um, just find peace and safety and support at this time, in Jesus' name. Anybody else today? I do. So, um, hi. So I did decide to go um, to Central California to see my family. I'm only gonna see a couple of them. Um, but anyway, um, I'm heading into the first, I'm heading into like the holiday season and it's the first holiday season since I lost my mom and my stepdad. And so it's just feels weird and it feels um, very different and just trying to like, just I, I'm doing pretty good most of the time, but I'm just looking forward and seeing, I don't know what that's gonna feel like and be like, so. Absolutely, Desiree. We and we hear the grief, and and we sit with you with that. And um, let's let's pray. Loving God, we lift up our dear sister Desiree, as she is um, going through so much at this time of year, as I'm sure many others are who are grieving the loss of loved ones. That's always a hard time of year um, to remember, to reflect, to feel the loss. But we pray for her spirit. We pray for her. Um, just sense of well-being and, and wholeness and peace of mind but I don't know we just lift up our sister and, and ask that um, she might know our love and the love of her family and friends um, during this difficult time um, we pray that she might feel supported and that she might um, as a result of reflecting on her on her parents and the love that she still holds for them and that she might feel their presence even with her now that she might know she's not alone, that she is loved. In Jesus' name, amen. Anybody else this morning? Hey, Aaron. Hey, Anthony. Uh, I am in Pecos, Texas. So well, praise for making it so far. And also uh, praise and shout out to the Delavans for recommending this mass, which is amazing. And uh, I guess just prayer for the rest of the drive. And uh, once I arrive that, you know, 
uh, everything goes as well as it can be that, you know, we are all, you know, visiting my grandmother or my mother, however all this works with all the restrictions and everybody's boundaries and, uh, and then just working from home. Yeah. All right. Loving God, we lift up Anthony on his journey. We pray for his health and safety. We um, also pray for his family and all the stresses that are involved with, with um, being safe and, and having to maintain boundaries. We pray for that. And um, we, but we just lift up our, our, our friend and brother, Anthony, and, and that he might uh, stay safe and um, just be at, find, find a time to be at rest during this holiday season. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, and then Desiree, I, I see that you also mentioned here, especially lift up her, your grandmother, Pat, who lost two daughters in the past 15 months, dear God. Um, and your aunt Charlotte, who lost two sisters. No, we cannot imagine how they feel. And um, we pray for them as well and pray for their health and well-being and their, the love and support of friends and family for them in Jesus' name. Um, anybody else have... Any, any prayer requests this morning for Joyce? All right, with that, uh, Max, I think I'm gonna hand it back over to you. Thanks, Aaron. <clears throat> um, I'm gonna share a music video of just a beautiful song, because I think we could use that. Um, so take this time for what it is. If you want to pray, if you want to meditate, if you just want to listen, if you want to take a break, um, this will be a couple minutes. So uh, hope you enjoy. Hours away through the hours of cold. Winter shall howl at the walls, tearing down doors of time.
kiss me leaves You wait for me only Scared of the lonely arms Surface Far below these
Thanks, Max. Really good. Love that uh, guitar work. It's beautiful. Um, all right. So one of the major problems I think we're facing as a country today is the inability people have to understand how they participate in institutional or systemic forms of oppression. As a culture, we tend to think about things like racism and xenophobia as individual sins, right? Sins only individuals can be guilty of and held responsible for and hopefully repent of. We tend not to think of things like racism and xenophobia as being communal sins, sins we can be guilty of simply by being part of a culture and participating in an unjust system that we also benefit from. I think our inability to think about racism on that level is the result of our hyper-individualistic culture or what some call American rugged individualism. Maybe you've heard of that before. This unique brand of American individualism teaches among other things that we are all individual actors. And if we succeed or fail in life, we are solely responsible as if we live in a perfect, uh, a perfect meritocracy and everyone gets what they deserve, both the rich and the poor. This kind of thinking pours over into other areas of life and teaches us to think that only individuals can be racist or xenophobic, that systems and institutions can't be, at least not since the 1960s and, and the passing of the Civil Rights Act, because that obviously ended systemic and institutional racism, right? <laughs> so, so this thinking is a real problem, and we saw it in the election. One of the major reasons why so many people still voted for Trump this time around, despite all of his nonsense and cruelty over the last four years, is because they feel demonized by liberals and leftists. I've spoken to members of my family who voted for Trump, and, and some of you have had similar conversations with your family members, um, and, and many of them voted for him knowing full well that he's not a good person. And yet part of the reason why they voted for him is because they're angry. They're reacting against being called a racist simply because they're conservative. They find the attacks from the left to be just as bad as anything Trump uh, says to demonize or dehumanize his opponents. Now, some of their anger is justified because some of the attacks from the left can be over the top. But the real problem here in my estimation is that many people can't understand that just because they don't harbor hate in their heart against people of color or gay people or Muslims or you know fill in the blank, they can't understand that just because they don't feel that way, that doesn't absolve them of their sin of participating in deeply oppressive and unjust systems. Again, there's, the, there's a, a big disconnect or a huge inability today to understand that racism and xenophobia are not just individual sins, but also communal sins, and both must be confessed and, and repented of. When I was a conservative, both you know, politically and theologically, I didn't harbor hate in my heart for gay people or black people. I, I was just part of a tribe that believed and espoused certain things, and I was a dutiful member of that tribe. You know, if you would have told me back then that I was a racist or, or a homophobe, I would have thought you, know, you were mean and, and ridiculous, and I wouldn't want to you know, to listen to you, because again, I didn't feel racist or homophobic, right? Therefore, I can't be, was the thinking. And yet I see now that I was guilty of those things because I was participating in and supporting systems that were deeply oppressive and unjust. Again, we need to understand that racism and xenophobia are not just individual sins, but communal sins, uh, and must be acknowledged and repented of, you know, too. 
And I'm using the language of sin today because I think that language can still be helpful, despite the fact that, you know, it's kind of a trigger word, right? This word sin. Uh, it's kind of a trigger word for many of us, my, myself included. But I think it's helpful in this context because of two reasons. I, I want to equip us today to talk with our evangelical friends and family about these matters and be able to use language they understand. And, and second, I think we find in the scriptures a really dynamic understanding of sin as both individualistic and communal. And I think that's a really timeless and universal truth, even if we don't believe sin as a theological or supernatural thing anymore. Um, the Hebrew scriptures tell us that on the annual day of atonement, the high priest had to make sacrifices to atone for his own personal sins and also make sacrifices for the sins of the community as well, or the sins of the nation. In many places in the Hebrew scriptures, there are instructions for sacrifices for both the sins of individuals and the sins of the community, and both were equally necessary. The Jewish people have always had a clear understanding that sin was not just some individual problem to be solved by individuals, but a communal and societal problem too. And in fact, one's personal individual sin was often only properly understood in the greater context of the community sin. I'm reminded of um, Isaiah's words, uh, his famous words when God, when God called him as a prophet, Isaiah responded and said, woe is me, I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. I'm reminded also of the story from the book of Nehemiah. How often do we talk about the book of Nehemiah? <laughs> when, when the Israelites returned to Jerusalem after spending 70 years in exile in, in Babylon, they put on sackcloth and covered themselves in ashes, which is always a, a traditional sign of mourning and repentance. They covered themselves in sackcloth and ashes and confessed the sins of their ancestors as a way of confessing their own sins. They didn't delineate between their own sins and the sins of their ancestors. Nobody stood up in the assembly that day and said, wait a minute, you know, I'm not part of that, that sinful generation from 70 years ago. I don't bear any responsibility for their sins. I'm not affected by what they did you know, so long ago. No, 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 right? They had a, a clear understanding of how communal sin worked and how it's passed down generation to generation and how it, in, it infects everyone like a disease and, and therefore it needs to be confessed and repented of collectively. As Christians, we need to reclaim that Jewish understanding of sin. You know, we need to reclaim that story. In many ways, the, the Christianity we've inherited in the United States is really a stolen story. A stolen, a stolen story, a stolen and modified story from its original context. Uh, and it's been stolen and modified to fit the purposes of a wealthy and powerful culture that really doesn't share much in common with those who wrote the scriptures and their original audience of you know, poor and, and marginalized people, right? The poor and marginalized people of Israel. So, you know, we, we have to reclaim that, that stolen story of communal sin. This is why it's so important that Max and Bob routinely lead us on Sunday mornings in communal confessions where we confess and, and articulate the sins of our nation and community as a way of understanding ourselves, you know, as, as part of a greater whole. And for us to take seriously what repentance that is as a community might look like and our responsibility in that. 
I, I think it's also helpful here to not just talk about the idea of communal sin, but also the Christian concept of original sin. I'm sure you've heard of this before. Again, kind of a trigger, <laughs> kind of a trigger word for us. Um, so many of us were taught to believe in original sin, right? Which is this idea that all, all human beings by no fault of their own are born guilty of the sin of Adam and Eve and are in need of a savior. Adam and Eve's sin guilt, we're told, you know, and to be clear, I'm not saying that this is true. I don't subscribe to these metaphysics anymore. But we're told that Adam and Eve's sin guilt is passed down to all generations like a, like a genetic defect. Uh, this means that all people everywhere are not just born guilty of original sin, but with something called a, a sin nature. And this means that we're all enslaved to sin and cannot help but sin. You know, no one is perfect. All have sinned, we're told. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, you know, per Romans. I forget the exact reference, but it's in Romans, right? And yet God still you know, imputes guilt to all regardless, because we're all part of the same broken and sinful family called humanity. And, and therefore we're all, we all share the blame and we all, we all need to be saved. We've all heard the story, right? And, and it's, and it's kind of a, a terrible teaching in some ways, and it's debatable whether Paul meant it in the way that it's been passed down to us. You know, we're dealing with these deeply esoteric and metaphysical terms like original sin or, 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 or sin, right? Or, uh, or the sin nature where we're dealing with these deeply esoteric and metaphysical terms. And, and you know, we're, we're 2000 years removed from the guy who invented them, Paul, right? And it's impossible to assume uh, you've understood him really well. And keep in mind, you know, nowhere in the Bible actually did we find this, this term original sin. It was, I think Augustine was the person who first uh, came up with it 300 years after, after Paul. But nevertheless, I think, you know, I kind of like the concept. I think it's, it's kind of brilliant because it's a great analog for what we actually see in our world with problems like systemic and inherited racism that hold entire populations captive for generations. It's like an original sin, right? It's, it's like a demonic possession or a kind of fallen condition, condition that inherently co corrupts everyone who's born into it. You can't escape it. You know, I've heard it said that Racism is America's original sin, and to be born white in America is to be infected with it from birth. You, no fault of your own. You're just kind of born with it because um, we're born into this culture. And I think there's some truth to that. And I think the theological framework that we've inherited from Christianity is helpful in understanding it. You know, if anybody should be able to understand how systemic racism works or how a culture of white privilege and white supremacy works uh, unconsciously on us. You know, it's, it's us Christians who have the theological and conceptual framework for understanding and articulating such things. It's a strange irony to me that so many evangelicals who believe in original sin and the sin nature think it's totally outlandish or nonsensical that there could be something like systemic racism or inherited white privilege or inherited anti-Blackness. The only explanation for their resistance here, I think, is the obvious one. It's not that they don't understand how systemic evil works. It's just that in this case, acknowledging it would mean changing the very systems that they've been benefiting from for a very long time. And yet I wanna make it clear that we who do get this, you know, we shouldn't get too high and mighty because if we really take seriously this idea of communal sin, then no one is guiltless. No one is guiltless, no matter how woke they are. We are all participating in unjust systems, such as life on earth, such, such as life in community. Um, 
and, and that should give us all cause to pray Isaiah's words, right? Woe is me, I am lost, for I am a, a man or a woman of unclean lips, and I live among the people of unclean lips. And yet this is no cause for apathy, right? We can't just throw up our hands and say, well, this, you know, what's the point in pursuing justice or trying to make the world better uh, if we're all part of these, if we're all part of these problems and, and sustaining them and, and can't really escape them. And to this dilemma, I always like to remember the words of, uh, and the wisdom of Ojioma Uluo, right? The, this uh, black activist who says, the beauty of anti-racism is that you don't have to pretend to be free of racism to be anti-racist. Anti-racism is the commitment to fight racism wherever you find it, including in yourself, and it is the only way forward. This is how we should think, in my opinion. And, and I think what makes the statement so powerful is that it's laced with grace. I like that, it's, it's laced with grace. And grace is a pretty important Christian concept too. But grace is only grace if it's given to those who need it. The righteous don't need grace, right? The righteous don't need grace. Uh, only the unrighteous uh, do. And we need grace today maybe more than ever. But in the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, it can't be cheap grace. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without repentance. Cheap grace is absolution without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. That's, uh, that's good stuff. So let's be people of grace today, but not cheap grace. And let's be people who take not just personal sin seriously, but communal sin and help others in our lives see that as well. But this is really hard, right? Uh, it's, it's really hard to explain to our loved ones that they may not be overtly racist or xenophobic or homophobic or whatever, but the ideologies and institutions they're supporting and participating in are racist are xenophobic or homophobic. And that means that in a way, they're racist or, or xenophobic or homophobic or whatever. That, that's really, really hard to communicate because that's really hard to hear, right? It sounds so harsh to say, someone, say to someone, you're not overtly racist, but you're kind of racist because you're, you're supporting and participating in these ideologies and institutions that are founded upon you know, deeply racist ideas and, and practices. That's, that's really hard to say to someone, especially to someone we love. But, but maybe if they're Christian, you know, talking about communal sin from a biblical perspective can be helpful or, or sharing our own personal story of realization and, and repentance in these matters. Maybe that can help too. I don't know. Uh, but we've got to find a way to have these conversations today. Uh, we're seeing uh, in, in the wake of the election that a lot is at stake, right? And, and we've got to take communal sin seriously. That's really what I want to say today. Um, so with that, I'm, I'm done with my formal presentation. Um, do we have any questions or comments about, about anything that I said? As always, you can post that and- uh... I had two, two thoughts. <clears throat> yeah, Jason. One, uh, the idea of you have to feel sin. Well, you didn't exactly say this, but it's almost like you are saying, um, it's not sin if I don't feel guilty about it. I did. I did say that. that some oh, okay. that that's kind of a common perception that if I don't feel racist or, xenoph or xenophobic, then you know I must not. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that's really interesting. I hadn't really thought about it, but yeah, it's like if I don't, if I, I won't recognize it as being a personal sin if I don't feel bad about it. 
Yeah. One. And two, I was just thinking that the Citizens United decision is really a good metaphor for um, where we are uh, culturally to think that an institution can be doing things that are wrong, but it has nothing to do with me because right. the institution is a thing by itself that has its own moral compass um, or a company, let's say, and they can do bad things, but it's not my fault. They're not my, they're not, I may work for that company, but I'm not the bad guy. Right. Or it may be my government that blows people up, but I'm not part of that government. That's a separate thing from myself. It's, um, and maybe it's American individualism or whatever, but we've detached ourselves from our institutions to such a large degree that they're entities on their own. And, you know, Citizens United is basically that, right? Um, so just interesting. Yeah, thank you for that comment. I hadn't heard of Citizen, that rings a bell, Citizens United, but I didn't really, know, don't really know much about them. I think it's Citizens United. It's the one that says that uh, companies uh, can be political entities. They're basically people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, under the law. Corporations yeah. are people, my friend. Yeah. And, it, was and, that, and, it was that whole quote. Yeah, that's really good. And imagine how much different um, our, our community, our nation, uh, our political environment would be if people actually took communal sin and institutional sin seriously. It, that we actually, you know, as individuals own kind of, you know, even, even a lot of folks who don't go to, um, you know, like, like a lot of Christians who are affirming that they go to affirming churches, right? Don't see a problem with that. And I don't want to like get into all that maybe, but, but it's sort of like if people really took seriously what they're participating in and supporting directly or even indirectly, you know, I think, I think this, this country, our communities would look vastly, vastly different. And in so in a way, we, you know, we've got to reclaim that, that holistic story from, you know, the Jewish tradition. It's really a Jewish uh, understanding of communal sin that we're talking about. And, uh, it's an ancient understanding, um, and uh, you know, in, in some ways, they were more woke than we were. <laughs> I guess is what I'm trying to say. That that's that story. That that part of their story is powerful. Max is like, yeah. yeah. I mean, the the only, the only thing. Sorry, Max. You here we go. No, I was I just saying. Let's not get in the business of comparing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, the only thing I was going to say about that, uh, Andrew, or uh, uh, oh my gosh, Andrew, sorry, uh, Aaron, um, is um, it, you know I, I think they I think there is still a notion of um, communal sin in in uh, in you know sort of fundamentals Christianity. It's just what they attach it to. You know, it's like they view you know there are many people that would view a natural disaster uh, or uh, anything that might you know, sort of some huge disaster that befalls America as a result of, um, you know, uh, gay marriage or, um, or abortion or any of these, um, uh, basically, and it's the acceptance of, uh, of that uh, by, by the people of this country. In other words, a, a, you know, sort of a communal sin that, that they would, uh, in, in their sort of, in their worldview, you know, so I, I think it's, I don't know if it's necessarily that that the the whole notion of communal sin is is lost uh, right. lost to them because of individualism. It really is um, uh, a fundamental difference of um, 
<laughs> of worldview of what constitutes um, a sin, you know? So um, I think the, um, you know, so it, it, as it applies to racism, you know, it's not that they can't think of something as being a, a communal sin, it's that they struggle to think of racism as a sin in and of itself. Um, you know, they might uh, view uh, just an egregious example of uh, something hor horrifically violent or, or whatever, some kind of horrifically racist crime or something like that as being, um, you know, an example of sin. But um, the, the more everyday, um, what we would describe as kind of like, uh, you know, um, a, an unconscious bias, um, a, a, you know, uh, a, a discomfort with uh, a, a black man being my boss, you know, they, they would struggle to define that as racism. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. You, yeah. you know, um, and so, uh, and so it can't, basically, since they struggled to even acknowledge it as racism on an individual level, um, they, and that really is what comprises sort of institutional or, or, or sort of systemic racism is, are, are those kinds of impulses, you know, in aggregate. Yeah. Um, they, they, you know, it's like basically they can't acknowledge the communal sin because there's been a short circuit, even on an individual level, an ability to even identify on an individual level that a certain action is, is, is racist or a certain view is racist. Yeah, that's interesting, Abe. You made some really good points there about that. Um, somebody else want to chime in and, and respond to that? I just wanted to say real quick in response to that, that's a really interesting chicken and egg <laughs> um, argument. And I think there's a lot of validity to it. Um, so from the other side, I, I saw it put really well a few months back, a while back, that essentially it was like, we need to start understanding that when we talk about systemic racism, we're saying that it's a system in which if there were zero humans involved, the, the intrinsic way that the system is set up would still lead to racism, right? So, and that's, I think, is a tough action. Uh, it's a tough thing to get our heads around to say, like, when we say systemic racism, we're saying the system has been set up in a way that disproportionately disadvantages certain groups based on race than other groups, Right, that's essentially what it is. And so that, that Abe, I think that's a really, I think it ha it's a, like a both and, right? Cause I think you're right. Cause I think, yeah, yeah. I think it's like, if we can't acknowledge our own personal role in that, then of course we're, it's harder to recognize how our role, it's like, wait, if I'm doing it and I'm participating in the systems, obviously then it makes sense that other people are doing the same where they're sitting. And also, we also need to realize that even if we aren't able to, you know, go through and delineate everything that we do that participates in it, just our very existence in the system, right, is in itself a perpetuation of the system, right? And and uh, I think it kind of depends. I think it's your point's really helpful. I think it for me it depends on who I'm talking to and what kind of their perspective is on it already. Because sometimes it's a lot easier to say like, hey, I'm not, I'm not aware of overtly racist things that you have done at the same time that does not absolve you or me, right? It does not absolve us from 
having to consciously think about how the systems we participate in every day unconsciously are an actual continuation of these cycles. Because it's only then that we can identify um, actions and thoughts and ways that we can, you know, stop the cycle, right? Where Aaron, you already quoted Bonhoeffer today, but yeah. like, I love his quote about, we're not only called to bind up the wounds of those, um, you know, caught under the wheels of injustice, we are called to drive a spoke into the very wheels themselves. And it's sort of that separation, right? That, Abe, to your point, like, I think, especially in the church, there's a lot of theology around, hey, you know, that wheel, it's not our job. We are supposed to be just binding up the wounds of the people that keep getting crushed. Um, and that's what Jesus told us to do. They didn't, he didn't say anything about, you know, the systematic systemic side of it. Um, yeah. So anyway, thanks. Thanks for that point. That, that really got my wheels turning. <laughs> to keep yeah. The metaphor. Again, I think, I think something we're all recognizing is that racism is treated uniquely in this country as not a communal sin. And you're right, Abe, to point out that Christians, that even fundamentalists or conservatives um, do recognize or do believe in communal sin because they believe in original sin, certainly. But they also believe, some of them, I grew up believing that when a hurricane struck the country, it was it was punishment for from God against the communal sins of our country for, you know, lax abortion laws or lax laws or, or the practice of homosexuality or something, you know, and that's still being believed today. So you're right in pointing out that they absolutely do believe in communal sin. But what's interesting is racism is uniquely treated in the church as a sin only an individual can be guilty of. Like racism and xenophobia is a specific personal sin that you need to, you know, repent of if you suffer from that. But we collectively don't engage in that anymore, especially the thinking is since the 1960s and the Civil Rights Act, we ended systemic racism. We ended institutional racism, the thinking is, I think, you know, since we ended Jim Crow uh, in 1960, what, at five? I don't know. So, you know, um, but you're, but so, but it's convenient, right? This, this disbelief in the communal sin of racism. There's a reason why they don't want to believe in that. And it's not because they don't, it's, be, it's not because they don't understand communal sin, you're right. It's because obviously by acknowledging these systemic uh, forms of, of racial injustice, they have to acknowledge uh, that things need to change and that would potentially alter their, their supremacy in the culture, their power, right? Uh, you know, it, it would mean changing fundamentally their, their social positions and their economic positions. Um, and that is untenable, uh, I think, you know, consciously and unconsciously within um, specifically the Christian community, uh, conservative Christian communities, yeah. Uh, other thoughts today? Yeah, I just wanted to point out very quickly that, you know, like we don't have to look far to see our own complacency in, um, you know, these kinds of uh, original sin and, um, you know, these kinds of systemic injustice. You know, I mean, just in this last election that we are um, celebrating so much, you know, California, our home state, who rejected Donald Trump by a 30 point margin also rejected a measure that would allow institutions to bring forward affirmative action um, again. And, you know, so like we deal with this battle within our own selves, even in super progressive anti-racist California that we like to lift ourselves up as. Hey JP. Hi, uh, I had a thought on this that 
has been with me for a while. I think, um, so we talk about racism and stuff, and but it's it's something that is expressed. And in my view, it's expressed in social class, but it's not um, the only factor in social class. So I, I often think about how people of the same race treat people of their own race who are in a different social class. You know, and, and I think like how the the system of social class, I think everyone can acknowledge exists. Um, we talk about working class people. We're not saying it to to put anyone up or to elevate anyone, but I think most people have a sense that in America there are say working class people. And then there's uh, the expression, that's the over there. Um, the expression white collar, blue collar. I don't think that that's necessarily racist per se, but then when you start examining the classes, you start to see those disparity, those proportion differences. I mean, well, why does that happen? If at birth, there's enough diversity per individual that all the aptitudes would be expressed everywhere proportionately. And I think like that's the part of the conversation that in my opinion, um, helps many people remove themselves because maybe in their heads, they're not breaking it up based on race, but they're certainly functioning within the system of class hmm. perfectly comfortably. Um, and I think that that's another problem that exists because I, I think today, if, if you wanna talk about white, um, there's two forms of whiteness. There's the fact of your skin looks that way and you can pass a certain way, but there's also you've integrated yourself into white proper society, if you will. So you can be any color and you have made it, you've achieved, you've worked hard like you're supposed to, like equality worked for you. So a person like that could still be black or Latino or Asian or so on, but they're within the white, in-group social class and so people can say well i have friends like that so clearly i'm not racist but they all walk back into the system of functioning with like different classes of people if that makes sense where the proportions are not equal that's really powerful thank you for sharing that um it sounds like to me what you're saying is that whiteness is uh is 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 kind of like a, a system that even people of color can join and become a part of and support. And uh, Andre Henry talks about how um, specifically he's critical towards people of color who are anti-Black in the sense of participating in kind of white supremacy, right? Uh, is, that, is that what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, I, I saw a photo this week um, because, you know, I kind of follow Liberty University stuff because, you know, I went there. Yeah, yeah. They had this photo in 2017 of Jerry Jr. and Donald Trump and somehow they got that entire section of the choir to be like black people. <laughs> and, you know, like there's a lot of black people at Liberty, but they're not 99% of the choir. <laughs> it's fairly proportional. And I'm like, they set up that shot. I've never seen that configuration, at least in my entire time there. And, and I was around that from about 94 to, I don't know, early 2000s or whatever. But my dad's like, there's, there are black people, don't get me wrong, there are, but it's like, they, they set up that shot clearly to, to send a message. And those people were proudly there to be part of it. So it's like, it's, it's, there's a, there's a, 
I think that the social class is the expression now, much more so than the direct, you know, this skin goes here and that one goes there. It's, it's filtering through. And, and I think like the class system is built into how you think in your culture, which is built into your language, your economy, and the whole thing. It's really powerful. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, re other co uh, comments, reactions? I'm seeing a great conversation going on here in the chat too. <laughs> Yeah, really good point, Lahua. Yeah, we've been taught to think that Jesus is my personal Lord and Savior, you know, this, this kind of, um, you know, uh, individualized Christianity that it's all about me and my heart and how I feel about God in my heart and how, you know, he feels about me and his heart. And there's this divorced kind of concept of what it, um, what it means that Jesus, in a sense, uh, came to save the world, I guess, or that, um, that the salvific, salvific effects of Jesus's uh, teachings were meant to be understood communally and not individually. Yeah, there's a lot there we can, that's a whole nother sermon, but that's, uh, that's a lot, uh, that's a really good point. Other thoughts and reflections today? Hey, Aaron, I had a quick question. Yeah, Tina. So I noticed that you, you talked about uh, systemic racism and homophobia as sort of built into the machine of American life, if you will. Um, I also noticed you've not mentioned sexism yet this morning. Yeah, I did. And I wondered if there was a reason for that. Um, no, not really. I think it just kind of... Is this a Freudian slip? That's a good question. Um, you know, I yeah. didn't like, I, I, when I wrote my talk this week, I used xenophobia because uh, I was thinking what, what would be a term that would be kind of a catch-all. Um, and so I, I put xenophobia in there. I think in my first draft, I had listed out sexism as well, but then I just replaced it with xenophobia. But you're right, in spots, I did mention homophobia as well. Um, no, but you're absolutely right to point that out uh, as far as, uh, you know, you're right. I didn't. I didn't uh, use the word sexism. I think in my talk, but you're absolutely right to point out that that is absolutely part of the systemic problems we're faced with: the, the communal sins, the patriarchy, <laughs> and the communal sins we must confess as well um, and own up to and and change. Um, yes, would, thank you. I would thank like to that. add too. I think it's it is one that is often uh, considered imaginary as a thing that's not real. Yeah. Um, that women are just fine. It's totally cool. Um, and right. that's not, that's not really a thing. I was reading an article just last night from a conservative, the church I work for in Nashville, my first gig as um, a church employee back almost 20 years ago now, I still keep up with them. They're pretty mainline evangelical, but they are adamantly complementarian, which means that you, they, they do not allow women pastors, women preachers, and they're part of a greater movement in um, in, in a kind of non-denominational evangelical church setting to, you know, reinforce that kind of sexism in the church. And the pastor there is really well known in complementarian circles. And it was just interesting to me. I'm reading that and thinking, you know, there is just 
no way. I guess I was thinking, reflecting like how so many people are pushing for churches to become affirming of same-sex relationships. I'm like, there's there's countless churches in the United States that are still deeply sexist and anti-woman. And they're not even there on that issue yet. They're, they're actually you know, totally against having a woman preach on Sunday mornings, even as a guest preacher, to say nothing of hiring a woman teaching pastor. Uh, and I'm just like thinking, how much further does the church have to go to even get to a place of being affirming on a grand scale if there's still even, you know, women's suffrage was 100 years ago <laughs> when women got the right to vote 100 years ago. And and the church, um, you know, in, in vast swaths of this country is still deeply sexist and patriarchal. And it's just light years behind the rest of the culture. And I guess I'm saying all that to say that the communal sin of sexism and patriarchy is not even close to being repented of in the American church yet, you know. Or and, American culture in general. I or American say. culture in yeah, general. Like you Absolutely. said, women's suffrage happened 100 years ago. And we have, you know, shout out, we've got the first female VP elect. Right. But it took a hundred years. Right. And women represent, I think it's more than half the population of the United States. Uh, and you could also make the argument that women uh, are not allowed to be president yet in this country. Yes. Um, and yet most of the electorate, or I'm sorry, mo most of the people who voted are female, as I understand it, as, as the exit polling. Thank you, Tina, for that perspective. Max. I was just going to say, yeah, I dropped this in the chat up. I'm trying to remember what the list was. I wrote, I would also add misogyny and patriarchy to that list. <laughs> Do you remember yeah, what yeah. list you were making? I think you were saying it's within the church, like the, oh, that the only sin that we see as like personal versus systemic. And it occurred to me, thank you, Tina, very much for saying this. It occurred to me too, misogyny and patriarchy on that list too, in the sense, if you confront somebody about saying like, Hey, this is this is a sexist thing to do. It's immediately turned into a, I am not a sexist, right? So it's I personally do not engage in overt sexism, and we're blinded to the fact that you don't have to participate in overt sexism to participate in an innately sexist system. So, and as Tina was just listening to, right? It's like that. That's exactly right. And what I think is really interesting, right? I'm. I'm pretty positive that all of you are familiar with the term intersectionality. This is why intersectionality matters, right? Because especially with these concepts, in many ways, in, as a historian, we can trace back these being the same concept tied to white supremacy, right? Because what did it mean to be a citizen, to be white and male, right? So I think we have done a good job and there's good job, I'll put that in quotes. We are making progress as a community, I mean, at central and a broader community, right? Of trying to name and work towards how do we dismantle systemic racism? And, but that has to also come along with the conversation. We have to dismantle systemic misogyny, systemic patriarchy at the same time, because that's all coming from the same place. Who has power and who doesn't have power? And so especially for those of us who are the white male, right, picture perfect of I am just by the way I am born, I have been handed power in this culture and this society because of my, my gender, my, I should say my, well, both gender and sex and because of my race and ethnicity. Um, so I think, I think it's right that we were talking about them together. It's, we can't, we can't really separate them out. Um, so thank you for that, Christina. Thanks, Max.
other thoughts, reflections? Thanks for a great conversation today, everybody. Um, I wanna say in, in light of the Thanksgiving holiday this week, I wanna give thanks for all of you and for these conversations in this community that weekly uh, we engage in diverse conversations and, and diverse voices are lifted up weekly and, and included here. And I'm deeply thankful for, for that, this community and, and, and I, and, and what we've constructed together, I want to make that clear. I'm, it's not what I've constructed, it's what we've constructed. And, and I am just deeply, deeply thankful, especially at this year, at, you know, and the difficulties um, of, of this time in our lives, you know, where we're all kind of estranged and figuring out what it looks like to do community and, and to be a family. And, and uh, it's extremely difficult. And I just want to just give thanks for all of you and, and what we continue every week to do here. And I don't know what it's going to look like going ahead, <laughs> moving ahead. I, I, um, I have, I, I'm optimistic, but anyway, I, I just wanted to say that and um, just to give thanks at, at the end of our service and um, how much you all mean to me personally and to my family. And, and um, anyway, thank you. <clears throat> so with that, um, hope this holiday is, uh, is, is still celebratory for you and yours, um, but go in peace and you're, you're free to leave. <laughs> it's always an awkward way to dismiss people. You're free to leave. You, you couldn't leave before, but now you can. Um, but uh, we can also hang out and chat if, if you want, but um, we'll see you next Sunday. Thanks. Yeah, I've been trying to sign out for 20.